And Lord, it's because You have stood for us, Lord, that we are able to stand for You. And so, Father, I pray again that You would inform us, teach us, and instruct us. Bless us through Your Word, Lord, that we would be prepared for every good work, every opportunity to stand in this week to come. And again, Father, we lift up the things that are going on across the world, even in Orlando as of recently, Lord, and we just pray that we would see that time is of the essence. And Father, in those whom you have given us the ability to minister to, I pray that we would be found faithful. And so, Lord, as nobody is guaranteed even the next moment, may we see and understand the necessity of going out and preaching the word and seeing salvation come into the hearts of those whom we minister to. So prepare us for that good work through your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you turn and greet your neighbors? Neighbor? Okay, as soon as we get the old guys off, off the stage. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 49. We'll be picking up at verse 1. We're looking at the ministry of the Messiah once again. We've seen it before and we're revisiting. It was a couple of months ago in Isaiah chapter 42 that we saw a man called the servant. We saw in our study that the servant and the translators recognized it as well as they capitalized the S, at least in my scripture, in my Bible, they did. But once again, we're reintroduced to this servant, and we know this servant to be Jesus the Messiah. Now, as we enter into the section of of the book of Isaiah called the book of the servant, which will go for about 10 chapters, we'll see this contrast because... Israel was to be God's servant. They were to display God as ruler over the world. God is the one who ministers to his people. And just they were to be God's people that he has set his love upon so that others would see that the love of God would be able to set upon themselves. But Israel at times, although they're referred to God's servant, they were deaf, dumb, and disobedient to the call that God had given them. Now, we know Messiah is God's servant. He always operated in perfect harmony with the Father's plan. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, it says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now, in our study of the previous three chapters of the book of Isaiah, we've seen how God confronted the gods who do not exist of the land, but he is the God showing himself as the God who does exist. It says in chapter 46, verse 21, tell and bring forth your case and let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior? There is none besides me. So Isaiah, some 700 years before the coming of Messiah, is speaking of Messiah and the details of Messiah's ministry. And we today, some 2,000 years after that fact, are able to look back. We're able to see the reality and the truth of what was spoken. And so we understand and know that this is of God because it's only God, our God, the God of Israel, who's able to speak of things before they happen as if they have happened. 
And as we're able to look back, we see once again all that the Lord is able to do. So in chapter 49, verses 1 through 6, we're going to be looking at the commission of the Christ. Well, actually, all the way through, I believe it is to verse 13. And then from verse 13 to the end of the chapter, we'll be looking at the comfort of the Christ. So first is verses 1 through 6, chapter 49. Listen, O coastlands, to me. Now when he says coastlands, he's speaking to all of Israel. He's speaking of the area from the point of um, the Jordan through to the coastland. Because, again, the idea is Jer- uh, Isaiah has been speaking, of, speaking to Israel And he's speaking of the opportunity of peace and confidence Israel is to have, even as they're able to go into Babylonian, not able, but even as they're brought into Babylonian captivity. So he says, listen, O coastland to me, and take heed, you people, from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver he has hidden me, and he has said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have, I said, I have <clears throat> labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain, yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant, I bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be gracious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Israel and to restore the perverted ones of Israel? I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles. And so, again, we have first the comfort of the Christ. And what we're going to look at is five things concerning, I'm sorry, the commissioning of the Christ. We'll look at five things that spoken of here concerning the commissioning of the Christ. First thing, the Christ is, the servant is, he is to be commissioned to the world. Israel tried to make him their own, looking for this Messiah that is going to restore Israel back to worldwide prominence. But that was not God's plan. God's plan was to send this servant through Israel for all of the world. And so we always have to be of the mindset that God is of the... His plan was always of the purpose for worldwide evangelism, to display Messiah to all the world. I I don't have any statistics or anything to back it up, but I've heard it from some very reliable sources that many, although we see what has occurred uh, this morning or last night back in Orlando, if you're unaware of um, a man proclaiming to be some sort of association with ISIS, went into a gay nightclub and killed over 50 people, wounding 50 other people. But as dark as it seems to be, it's been said that there's more Muslims now coming to Christ than at any other time in church history. And so it's an amazing time right now. And so God, his ministry, or Messiah, his ministry is worldwide. And we have to see that, we have to understand that, that there's nobody who is beyond the ability for God to reach and to save. Now, all of us here, we've got people thinking that there's no way God's ever going to save them. No way God could ever. You know, we know people that are pretty far from the Lord. But at one point, you were pretty far from the Lord. I was pretty far from the Lord. And God came and he saved me. And we could give testimonies and hear of people who were, who were doing some pretty, pretty ungodly things 
But the Lord enters in, and really, the further away you were, the more God is glorified. And so, I have a series of scriptures that I tie together. The first one is John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Now, we know that the world, or all of those that include his people, those who will be saved, but also those who are the unsaved, or will even remain unsaved and one day be judged, but God loves them too, and he died for them that if they would receive on him, if they would call upon him, that they would be saved. The fact of the matter is they didn't, but God desires for all men to be saved. He loves the world, and because he loved this world, he sent his son. Now, when he says he gave of his son, that means he gave him to be crucified upon the cross. In Titus chapter 2, this is another one, Titus chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God, now it's speaking of the magnitude of the grace of God, and the grace of God is worldwide. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It's appeared to all men for the purpose of all men to make a decision. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, it speaks of God who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, you would just think, if God desired for all men to be saved, then all men would be saved. But God gives opportunity for each one to make the determination on what they're going to do with Christ. What they're going to do with Christ. Now, what we use the illustration, it's a free gift. Salvation is a free gift that God holds out to all of mankind. Now, if I came and say that, I bought you this gift, and I went up to hand it to you, you'd make the determination. Do you want it, or do you not want it? And if you refused it, then you know you would hurt my feelings, and you know, I, I probably put thought and effort into that gift, but if you refused it, then it would probably do damage to the relationship. That gift would never really truly be a gift until you closed the deal, if you will, by receiving it. And it's the same thing with salvation. Now, the Holy Spirit enables us. God gives us understanding and all, but it boils down to the will of man. The will of man, are you going to receive? Because of the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We present the gospel in a way that man is able to understand for the purpose of making that decision. And everybody will make the decision. What are you to do with Christ? So God desires all men to be saved. Well, since he desired all men to be saved, what did he do? He went in a very public place, the cross, and he died for all of humanity, that all humanity would make a decision concerning Christ. Matthew 28, 19, when he commissioned his, when he commissioned his apostles, he told them, therefore, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He didn't say just go to Israel. He said to go to all of the nations. In the scriptures, when you see that word nations, that's 99.9% of the time speaking of all nations apart from Israel. Well, they were already in Israel. He wanted them to go out into all the nations. It's the Great Commission. Now, the Great Commission, as it is state, stated in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me, in Jerusalem, well, they, they pretty much already knew that because they had come together in verse 6. Previously, it says, therefore, when they had come together, they asked them, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They were nearsighted. They were looking for the kingdom just to be established right there, and they were looking for prominent positions. 
But Jesus told them, but you, you're going to receive power, but when you receive power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, yes, but all Judea, that's the surrounding area to the city, Jerusalem, and Samaria, just to the north and to the end of the earth. That would encompass all of the nations. And so, Messiah's ministry, Messiah's ministry is a worldwide ministry. Now, everybody who is going to get saved is going to get saved, and God knows those who will end up being saved. But as far as us, we don't get that information. We're just simply told to go. We're to have God's Word. We are to share God's Word, not making the determination on who's savable and who's not savable. And it's been said that you'll be just as surprised as those people when you get into heaven who will be there with you, and you'll be just as surprised as those who aren't there as well. And so we do not know the hearts of men. We just go out and are obedient to the call of God. And so the Father's main motivation in sending his Son was that the love of God would be displayed to all the world. Israel, his servant, had failed in that. They kept God to themselves, if you will. But this servant that was to come, he is going to display the love of God to all the world. Again, verse 1, listens, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you people from afar. Secondly, he was to be the servant, Messiah, was to be commissioned from the womb. In verse 1 again, listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you people from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother, or the inner portions of my mother. He has made mention of my name. Now, Messiah, it was that plan was from the foundation of the world, and we know the story of the virgin birth and all, and so it was God's plan from the beginning to use this man, Messiah. So when Messiah came about, when he appeared to all of mankind, uh, looking, well, look over at Luke chapter 1, if you brought your Bible here today. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 Again, just thinking of that young girl, Mary, who was probably 13, 14, 15, somewhere in that area. And all of these women throughout the history of Israel looking forward to this time of Messiah coming, and maybe they're going to be the one. And then her receiving that news, think of how overwhelming that must have been. Verse 26, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Of all the women of Israel, and really throughout the ages, you are the one who is blessed. She isn't standing out because of who she is. Really, she's standing out because of who God is causing her to be. It says in verse 29, But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. The only way any of us are ever used by God is that you have found favor with God. The only way that we serve God is because of the grace of God. And so Mary, the only way that this could happen is because God found favor with her. Mary was a sinner. Mary was an imperfect person, but because she found favor with God, she was given this ministry that was above all ministries. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him a throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so this was a ministry that was established by the Father from so long ago. During Mary's day, it was coming to fruition. During Isaiah's day, it was being spoken of so that when it occurred, they would know. So many ways and so many areas of the Scriptures that the Jews on that day when Christ entered Jerusalem on his triumphal entry, if only you would have known this day, this day of your, of your peace, this day of your salvation, but they didn't know. Why? Because they chose to ignore the Scriptures, at least misinterpret the Scriptures. This is just like Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Now, how much more so Jesus Christ, who was in perfect fellowship with the Father before that time. So from Genesis chapter 3, when it's prophesied the coming Messiah, the coming Savior, to Luke chapter 2 that speaks of the birth of the Savior, to Revelation chapter 19 when Jesus returns again for the second time, God's plan from the beginning is being worked out in detail. The last part of verse 1 where it says, made mention of my name, the idea is that he is claimed by the Father as his. We see that come to fruition in Matthew chapter 3, Verse 17, when the Lord was baptized, it says, And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. What happened? He was baptized, but even more than that, in a way that we should be able to relate to, it was then that the Holy Spirit came like a dove. When the Bible says like a dove, so it wasn't a dove, but it was like a dove and landed upon him. And it was because of that that God verified what would occur in our lives because at the moment of our salvation now don't get me wrong jesus was never saved he was perfect but the moment of our salvation the holy spirit has come upon us he dwells within us at the point of salvation and when i come to the understanding and the realization that the holy spirit dwells in me that in essence is the father saying this is my beloved child you're his beloved child and whom he is well pleased. Why is he well pleased? Because you came into the kingdom of heaven through belief. And now you're one of his favored child children through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as the Holy Spirit came upon Christ, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And just as it was verification of him being a son of God, that favored child, it's verification in our lives. Not verification so that I would look at you and see that you're saved. I just said I can't judge the heart of anybody, and nobody can, but for yourself, so that you would know, because we all doubt at times. The devil, he'll speak lies into our lives, and he doesn't even need to speak lies into our lives. <laughs> the truth is condemning enough, but we have that hope in the great Lord that he has relieved us for, from all of our sins. Thirdly, he was commissioned to his word, verse 2. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me. He made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. And so the sword, the sword is that scalpel that is able to perform the fine surgery of dividing body, soul, and spirit. Dividing you to your innermost being to make determinations of who you are 
how you are for the purpose of revealing all that you are. Remember when Adam hid himself in the garden? Well, it's a good thing that God found him. Because if God didn't find him, then he would never have that proper covering. Remember when the Lord expelled him out of the Garden of Eden and he put those angels to guard over it so that he can't come back in? What was the problem with him coming back in? That he wouldn't eat of the tree of life and live forever. Because if he would have eaten of that tree of life at that point and lived forever, he would have spent eternity apart from God. Adam had to die just as we all had to die, but it was during this time of life as we hear the word of God, it separates body, soul, and spirit. It separates us for the purpose of making the determination of who is right with God. And there we have the word of God as it speaks to us, as it convicts us, even as it saves us. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I was kind of thinking over this, I was just kind of meditating on this section of Scripture. And earlier that day, as I was reading the one-year Bible, we call it the Bible bus, but reading the one-year Bible, it was speaking of the time when Solomon, most of you have heard the story, probably even in an unsafe state, had these two women that came to him, and both of them had had babies, and at night one of them rolled over on her child and accidentally killed the child. And she was despondent, and she got the, her dead baby and traded it with the other woman's baby and, and just kind of went on. Well, the other woman, when she woke up in the morning, realized that that baby was dead, but then looking to it, she understood and realized that's not her baby. And I'm sure she recognized the other woman with her baby, and so they had this dispute, and they were brought to the king. And I would imagine that some of the officials were thinking, I wonder how in the world he's going to rectify this situation. And that's when he said, bring the baby to me, and... He took a sword, and he was going to divide the baby in half. And the woman who's, he, he wasn't going to do that, but he said he was going to do that. And the woman, who, who, the woman whose baby really died said, yeah, go ahead and do it. And the other one says, no, let the baby live, give him to that other woman. And Solomon realized that the one who was willing to give up the baby was the true mother of the baby. But I just kind of looking at the picture of that sword. And it's the sword of the word of God that, it does divide, but it divides for the purpose of revealing truth. And it's the truth that, well, it's the truth that, it's only through the truth that we're able to live a life, not only that glorifies God here in this planet, but able to live a life collectively with one another. As we live our lives as collectively, according to the word of God, we're living in truth. And as we live in truth, we live in a degree of peace and harmony. We still have that sinful nature that kind of messes things up. But then you see as a lie enters into the picture, and again, look what's going on worldwide. Look what's coming even to the doorstep. You know, what, what did we legislate? They legislated that area of Florida as a gun-free zone. So when you had somebody that went in there, with a gun, there was nobody there that was able to stop them. Apparently, they forgot to tell the terrorists that it was a gun-free zone. I'm not even saying that to be funny, but we try to legislate all of these things, but you cannot legislate morality. You cannot legislate what is right and what is true. That only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today, the sword is the word of God that reveals the truths of God for the benefit of all of mankind. 
Just as the surgeon will use his scalpel to remove a tumor from inside of somebody that would eventually kill them, but remove that tumor for the purpose of their well-being, God's word penetrated us for removing the sin within our lives so that we would have life, that we would even have eternal life. When he speaks of a polished shaft here, this speaks of a sleek arrow, one that flies straight and true. And this is for the purpose of wounding men for their own good or even for judgment. And we see that aspect of it in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. He had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth when a sharp two-edged sword. When Jesus comes back in Revelation chapter 19, he's going to wield that sword once again. I, my wife and I, we, we stood on Megiddo. It's a fortress that's up there, and there's a lot of ruins that are up there, and it's kind of a neat thing. You really get a good idea on what it looked like during those days. But on top of Mount Megiddo, you can see the Valley of Armageddon. And the thing that I would equate it to is if you're coming from Orange County, or at least you're coming from the 57 freeway, and you come down the 60 freeway, and after you kind of go through those hills, then it opens up into this inland empire and this valley and it's almost like as vast as this valley is here Ontario and then Fontana and Rialto and so on and so forth and so all at, at that time during Revelation chapter 19 all of the armies of the world are going to be gathered together and you're going to think well that'd take a pretty big valley well we have a valley such as that right here and the the valley of Armageddon is about that size so I can see how how that would happen. So just think of this valley here that you have seen, if you haven't been to Israel, and just think of it filled with the armies of the world. And here comes Jesus Christ coming back on a white horse. But not just Jesus Christ coming, there's going to be a cloud of witnesses of which we will be part of it. See, if you're a born-again believer today, and the rapture happens during our time, or if you die and go to be with the Lord, one day you will come back with Jesus Christ. Now, the armies of the world, they're gathered together. They're, they're thinking that they're going to fight against Christ. But Christ comes, and we're not there to support him as far as fighting the battle. We're just there for the purpose of being a witness. But he's going to wield, once again, the, the sword of his word. And it's going to slay the armies of the world. And it's going to be a great massacre. And the idea is, as he comes back, what is he going to say? I don't really know. It's probably not going to take much. And they're all going down. When it says his quiver has hidden me, it's kind of an interesting concept as well. This would speak of the Father's divine protection of the Son for the purpose of his plan. I've said it before, while we are in the will of God and God has plan and purpose for ourselves, we're immortal. I mean, again, we're protected by God for the purpose of his plan. Well, Jesus, many times, they, they tried to take him, but it wasn't his time yet. In John chapter 7, verse 30, it says, Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. He was in Jerusalem during that time. They could have taken him very easily, but it was, he was divinely protected for the purpose of the completion of the plan. In Luke chapter 4, verse 29 through 30, they accused him of blasphemy. It says, And they rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which the city was built. My wife and I, we stood on what they believe is the brow of that hill, and it would be very easy to throw somebody off. I was going to throw Terry off to see if it worked, but I didn't think it would be a good idea. They brought him to the brow of the hill and where their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. And it says, 
And it just simply says this. Then passing through the midst of him, he went his way. Why? Because, again, there was divine protection here. He's immortal at this point. He's going to die. There's no doubt about it because that's the plan, not of these men, but of the Father. But it's not yet the time for that to occur. The scripture that I just read in John 7:30, where therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. That was about six months. We saw last Thursday night, about six months before his crucifixion. And so he's not going six months early. And so the father in his quiver, he has hidden me. The father protect him for the fulfillment of the plan. What God has called us to do, he will enable us to do and he will keep us until the completion of what we are supposed to do. Fourthly, the Messiah was commissioned for God's work, verses 3 and 4. And he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing in vain. Yet surely my justice reward is with the Lord and with my God. God's work can be thankless in this life, but it will be rewarded in the next life. We see the ministry of Messiah, and we see how he was rejected by men. And if you would look at success for ministry, on the surface you would think that Jesus failed. That he failed in that because, again, nobody, well, not nobody, obviously there were those who received him, but they put him on the cross and they crucified him. So I can look at the Lord's example. We're called to the work of ministry. And the first ones that you think you would minister to would be those of your family. And that can be some of the hardest ground to crack, some of the hardest ministry within those whom we really love. Well, look at Jesus' example again. The religious leaders, they opposed him. His disciples, they rarely understood him. And he, those he helped, they rarely thanked him. And so it looks like it was a very thankless ministry. But again, through that apparent defeat came a great victory for all of humanity. And so that tells me, never grow weary of doing good. And I'm not just saying living a good life, but of being obedient to God's call in your life. Never, never, never quit. The only failure in Christianity really is given up. Is given up because you never know if the Lord's going to move just in the next day. I was meeting with a group of pastors, and one of the pastors said he was ready to give up. It just wasn't happening, and it wasn't, really wasn't going how he thought it should be going. And so the question was brought to him, how do you know that the Lord doesn't want to open the floodgates the day after you quit? Now again, if you've made the determination, and all of this is based upon not just going off and doing something, but it's based upon the best determination you can make of what the will of God is in your life. And that's what we're to do. We make the best determination of what the will of God is in our life, and then we go for it. We give it all. And so if the will of God is to come here and to park cars, go for it. Be the best car parker that you can possibly be. And I would tell that person, if God's called you to be a pastor, then if he's just given you, you know, if it's just your wife, pastor your wife and as we're faithful in the little things what is he going to do he's going to give us greater things but he gets to determine get he gets to determine what the greater thing is messiah humbled himself before the father and because he humbled himself we're told in philippians chapter 2 
the Father had highly exalted his name above all others. And now Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. I know if I humble myself, not expecting anything for myself, the Father in heaven will lift me up. Because as I have preconceived notions on how things should be and they don't come to pass, it's the advent of discouragement. But as I'm just simply doing what I know God called me to do, then as long as I'm in the will of God, what else really matters? And so where do you want your praises? Do you want your praises from simple obedience to God? Or do you want your praises from man or even from yourself, those things that are going to be so temporary? It was kind of funny. I played in a golf tournament not too, a couple of weeks ago. Now, this was of the Lord because it was for Ontario Christian High School, so it was a good thing. Anyway, it's a fundraiser for the school's athletic department. And so we're sitting there, and you know, you, you pay for the tournament, and then you go in there, and they want to sell you raffle tickets, because it's all about making money for the school. It's all for a good cause. And then the last thing they do, you're all in your carts getting ready to go out and play golf, and they have these two kids. They do this every year. Now, these kids are really good golfers. And they had this one kid, I played with him actually a couple of years ago, but now he's become some kind of state champion or something like this. And what they do, and this doesn't sound good, but they raffle off a young kid. (laughs) And the kid kid comes alongside and plays golf with you. So if you you pay for this kid, then he's going to come and play golf with you and, and, uh, and you'll probably do well. Well, they went forth in this raffling. I did not participate in that because I could not afford this kid. He went for $3,000. There was a group of guys, these old fat guys that were there. If you're an old fat guy, I apologize. But there were an old fat guy that was there, or, three, or four old fat guys that were there, and they, they got the guy. And, and so they, they brought him on their team, and they won the tournament. Because they paid $3,000 for this kid, they won the tournament. And you know what they got for $3,000? A little trophy that you could probably go for 10 bucks and buy somewhere and have your name put on it for an extra 5 bucks, and you would have gotten the same thing. But my, my point in that is, when we work all of these things out, you end up with a trophy that's not worth anything, really. It's not going to have any lasting value when, when you're doing these things in the flesh. But when we just are faithful to whatever it is that God has called us to do, we're storing up riches in heaven. This life can be hard. Living a Christian life, when we studied the book of Hebrews, we found living a Christian life is a hard thing to do. It takes a lot of effort. It takes me, it takes us constantly dying to ourselves. Some of us were sold the bill of goods that if you come into the Christian life, there'd be nothing but blessings and we'll be skipping down the yellow brick road. But that's not really how it is. It's a hard road to walk. And we must not veer off to the right, not veer off to the left, but again, cut that straight path. But as we cut that straight path, God will bless. God will bless, and we'll have blessings stored up for us. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 through 12 tells us, blessed, now that word blessed means happy or content. Content, I think, is a better, the best translation. Content are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil for you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, again, this is kind of a conflict here, a contradiction. Blessed, content are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. 
<clears throat> that's not the way that we define contentment. But again, the Bible, the Bible presents these contrasts to us that we would understand and know that this world is not what it is about. This world, this world is where we are to minister because again, Christ died for the world. God desires to see all people saved. Every man will make a decision, make his determination concerning who Christ is. And because of that, we go out and persuade men. Because of the terror of the Lord, we go forth and persuade men. Although man's rejection of the Lord amazed him, grieved him, and brought tears to his eyes, he continued on to that cross. He continued on to that cross, and that apparent defeat became an amazing victory that those who would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved as Christ paid the price for our sinful ways. Fifthly, he was commissioned for God's way, verses 5 through 6. And now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him? So Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant? to raise up the tribes of Israel and restore the perverted ones of Israel, I also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. God's victory of redemption in the face of man's rejection. And I just want to make a, a simple point here. It was always God's will, as I said when I started, to reach the Gentiles through Israel. That was his avenue by which he was going to reach them, but they were an unfaithful servant, so we raised up Messiah. And through Messiah, salvation came to the Gentiles. So, how does that affect me? As I said before, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And it was through that that salvation came to our life, was presented, if you will, to our lives. There's the Apostle Paul, and in Acts chapter 13, is the beginning of his ministry. It's his first missionary journey. And he's going out on that missionary journey. And one of the first things that he experiences is rejection. And in Acts chapter 13, <clears throat> excuse me, verses 44 through 48, it says, On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. <clears throat> but when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, speaking of the Jews, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Now Paul was a man of the word of God. He was a Pharisee. He called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. Pharisees knew the word of God forward and backward. The Isaiah that we're reading tonight is the Isaiah that Paul, the Apostle Paul, studied before he got saved. So he knew it, and here he gets saved. Most people don't understand this, but when Paul got saved on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, and then we come to Acts chapter 13 that we were talking about, his first missionary journey, that was a period of about 16 years. And during that 16 years, he was preparing and planning for what God would do in his life. He was learning so that he would understand the fulfillment of the Old Testament in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would be prepared for every good work that God would have for him. And he understood that we are to be light to the Gentiles. And so as he is experiencing this persecution from the Jews 
And I would imagine at the beginning of his, his missionary journey, he's probably thinking that the Jews are, should understand as I now understand. I mean, you would think that if they knew the Scripture, they would understand the fulfillment of the Scripture in Messiah. And so Paul is seeing the out-and-out rejection of his people who should know these things. And instead of coming to Christ, they're standing firm in their traditions and their beliefs rather than the Word of God. And so he understood now why the Word of God must go to the Gentiles. Because the Jews have thoroughly and completely rejected it. Now when it says Jews, it doesn't mean all Jewish people. Usually the term Jews refers to the Jewish religious leaders. But we're told in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, which Paul penned, <clears throat> For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, because the Jew had the Old Testament, and also for the Greek, or also for the Gentiles. Back in f- chapter 49, verse 7, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the um, servants of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes shall also worship, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. So we see because of the commission of Christ, the nations are going to come into the kingdom of God. And we need to look back on this now from our standpoint and look back and see how this has been fulfilled. And again, you need to glory in the Lord. We're just going to close from here, and we'll do the rest of the chapter next time we meet. Just in case I forget, we're not meeting next Sunday night. It's Father's Day. We're taking next Sunday night off. But we should be able to look back just on the things that we've read in verses 1 through 7 and see how these things have been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they were spoken of 700 years before the time. Now, one of, the, well, one of the points was from verse 1, when it says, Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of me. This is the same thing for us, because God's plan for salvation was in place before the foundations of the world. It was just simply spoken of by Isaiah 700 years before the birth of Messiah. But as prophesied, Messiah came. Messiah set the world on its ear 2,000 years ago. This insignificant people in an insignificant land under Roman domination. But because of Jesus Christ, you see how that which started in such humble beginnings, it went worldwide. It didn't just go worldwide, it went ages wide. For the past 2,000 years, God has been doing a great work. A great work that one day it arrived at your, at your doorstep, the doorstep of your life, that somebody shared the gospel. And again, what, what Paul says, going back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone, that means anyone, who believes. For the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. How is it revealed? From faith to faith. And so from Isaiah and those people Isaiah is talking about, those who kept the writings of Isaiah, kept them to the times of Christ so that we could see the fulfillment of it. 
Christ as he commissioned his disciples, as we saw in Matthew chapter 29, and as we saw in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and the disciples that went out, and as they were faithful to tell people, as I pointed out before, keep in mind, you are related to somebody who heard the gospel from the mouth of Jesus. And when I say you're related, you're spiritually related. Because somebody who heard the gospel from Jesus Christ took that gospel and shared it with somebody else, who shared it with somebody else, and shared it with somebody else. So either verbally or those who wrote it down, who wrote the epistles, wrote the gospels, again, we are all offspring from that. And that's Paul's point in Romans chapter 1, from faith to faith. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, or person to person, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And that being the case, we need to be found faithful. We need to be found full of faith. And that progression that started so long ago that came to my life, that came to your life, it ought not to be stopped. Wouldn't that be, not, not that people aren't going to get saved. God is sovereign over salvation. But it ought not to be stopped. As somebody spoke the words of the gospel into my life and, and faith germinated and sprang forth, I am to pass it along. And that is to continue on. And as we see that process going on, I know what I see. I see the truthfulness of God's word and the reality of the love that he has for the world. And because of that, regardless of the things that are going on, regardless of that unfortunate event that happened, we experienced it here in San Bernardino, what, about six, seven months ago? Regardless of those things, I see and I know that God is still in control, that God still has a plan and he's working it out. Coming to the realization that this place here, we sojourn here. We're here temporarily. This is not heaven. Heaven is going to be eternal. And it's going to be that place where he is, we will be also. And we so look forward to that day. Oh, how I pray that our heart, it yearns within us. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your graciousness. And I pray, Father, that we would grasp onto it, that we would hold on to it dearly, understanding, Lord, this great love with which you had for us, that you loved us to such a great degree that you're sent a son and that whoever believed on him, whoever would believe on him, would not perish but have everlasting life. And Father, again, that wasn't a new thing at that point in history. This was a way that Paul would come and go into the synagogue and he would reason from the scriptures. He would show Christ from the scriptures and how those scriptures were fulfilled in him. And as he did, we see these people would come to faith in Christ and it's the same way today, that through the spoken word, through the word that we share, we have the opportunity and we see the reality of being able to see lives changed. And so, Father, I pray that we would take this out of this place tonight, that we would consider these things in our heart, that we would consider the people who are in our lives. And, Father, we would realize that we have these words of eternal life. And I pray, Father, that we would be found faithful in sharing them to this world that is so perishing. Lord, it so seems like there's a tragic event as there was that occurred last night almost every week. And we wonder, okay, when, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when the next one is going to happen. We so live in a godless world, but we do so, Father, for your glory. And so, Father, may we realize the commission, may we realize the power of the gospel, and I pray, Father, that we would be a people who are passionate about you. So, Lord, I lift up those who have come out tonight. I pray that you would bless them. I pray that you would go before them in this coming week. I pray, Father, that as you do, you would reveal to them what your will is in their lives for this coming week. 
And Father, just pray that we would see you do great things through our humble offerings, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.